Hi everyone! I know what you're thinking. I don't know this voice. Where is Stephanie and Janet? Was there a coup at asymmetrical haircuts? To answer your questions, my name is Ilaria. I have been working at the podcast for a few months now. Stephanie and Janet are totally fine and there's been no hostile takeover. Yet. As you might know, we are currently on summer break and we will be back in September with brand new episodes. But to keep you company this summer, I was given a very important mission. So what I did was dive deep into our archive, I listened to every single minute that was ever recorded, and I picked four of our old episodes to repropose during the month of August. So sit back, enjoy the throwbacks, and stay ready for September. And women are um, no longer really wanting to stay silent anymore. Justice plays an important role. Such abhorrent crimes must not go unpunished. Proceedings will be long and complex. All right. Hello and welcome. This is our first ever live asymmetrical haircuts event. Uh, I'm Janet Anderson. I'm one half of asymmetrical haircuts because that's my hair. Um, Stephanie Vandenberg isn't here. Where is she? She's in a concrete bunker. She's at Schiphol. She's following the MH17 on behalf of her other employers. So uh, follow her and you can see all of the news that way. So what makes this live? This makes it live because you're here, you're an audience. So could I have a clap, please? Yeah. Proves that they're there. Um, I'm very lucky that I have a couple of people here on stage, but I'm also expecting you guys to, uh, to take part in this as well. We're here because uh, this month, March, is the uh, month that we celebrate International Women's Day. Um, does anybody know what the theme is this year? Any ideas? You know what this one is? I'm holding one hand over the other. What is it? Generation equality. We're all meant to be equal and we're meant to be supporting each other to become more equal. But we thought that we'd look at one specific aspect of why it is that inequality is maybe not happening in some of our international institutions. Um, we thought that we'd also look back a little bit at the Me Too movement, which I think we're all aware of, at uh, what happened since then with Time's Up, and ask ourselves, what has changed? Has anything changed? What needs more to change? And look specifically at sexual harassment of one of the issues. Um, it's one of the symptoms, perhaps, of gender inequality, one of the symptoms of the power relations that we are experiencing in the different institutions where we work. And we're here in The Hague. I'm sure all of us are very happy to be here because it's a very important city to be in, city of international justice, as it calls itself. Um, it's got the International Criminal Court. It's got the International Court of Justice. Yeah, some latecomers, please feel free to come and uh, take a seat. Um, it's got some of the major NGOs based here, uh, Oxfam, Care, Mercy Corps, etc. So how well are they all doing at combating the issues around sexual harassment? But I'm not alone, and I'm not only with you, I've also got my guests here on the stage. I've got uh, Alex Willemer, Senior Advocacy Advisor at Women's Initiatives for Gender Justice. Welcome back to the podcast, Alex. Thank you very much, Janet. 
and tell us what does the Women's Initiatives for Gender Justice, which I will try not to say so much each time, but what no, do you do? Okay. Women's Initiatives is an organisation that works out of The Hague. We work to um, better uh, gender equality, we work towards gender justice, and we work towards better and more accountability for sexual and gender-based violence. Uh, one of the ways that we do that is through a multi-year campaign that we launched last year called, called the Call It What It Is campaign to get a better understanding of all forms of sexual violence, especially from a survivor perspective. And one of the campaigns that we will have this year is to make sure that at the end of the year, when the Assembly of States parties to the Rome Statute, the foundational treaty of the ICC, elects six new judges and the ICC's new prosecutor, they do so after having carefully vetted all candidates to make sure that none have either committed, condoned or ignored sexual harassment. Well, that sets that on the agenda, so we're going to be discussing that. I'm also joined by Dinica DeVos. Hi, Dinica. Hi, Janet. She's Integrity Lead at Oxfam Novib, but you might also know her from some of her greatest hits, such as Intraparty Reproductive Violence at the Columbia <laughs> Constitutional Court, where you were noting with a colleague the groundbreaking judgment which found that contraception and forced abortion are both forms of sexual and gender-based violence that constitute war crimes. Um, this was kind of expanding, building on an ICC judgment in the same area. So what hat are you wearing today, Dinaka? <laughs> I guess I'm wearing both hats. I'm here, I mean, I think it's very important what Alex raised earlier around the conversation around integrity in international justice, I think, is really just beginning. Um, and that's, of course, something because of the issues I'm working on right now in the humanitarian and development sector, coming from an international criminal law background for me is really exciting to see that we're having those conversations. Um, so for me in that sense I'm wearing both hats, speaking both on behalf of Oxfam and the role that I have and the work that we're doing on that but also for my personal and academic interest using that to look at international law. And does anybody know what an integrity lead does? No? Nor do I. Okay. <laughs> what do you do, Dinica? What, what are you integrous about? <laughs> So my role was um, newly created, I'm sure everyone will have seen the news in the last couple of years around sexual exploitation, abuse and harassment in the humanitarian and development sector. So Oxfam, but also other organizations, invested big time in positions like mine that sort of, that lead organizations around our values, our code of conduct, what integrity means and how we interact with each other, but also with those that we do the work for. So as integrity lead, I'm the head of the integrity team and we look at, we do preventative work, we do a lot of training, but we also are the main resource within the organization to investigate allegations of sexual exploitation, abuse and harassment, which is what we call safeguarding misconduct, as well as corruption and fraud, um, or financial use, abuse of conflict of interest, nepotism type of misconduct. So my first question to both of you is, um, has the Me Too campaign been going on for a couple of years, a huge explosion of um, information about uh, sexual harassment, particularly in the entertainment world, that's where it started. Has it had any effect on international institutions? Are they stepping up on this or are they hiding their heads in the stand? Well. If I may start, um, the effect that it has is, is well, we're here. It's International Women's Day, and we're talking about it. And oh that yeah, is, yeah, boo sucks. 
Pardon? Yabu sucks. Isn't that great? <laughs> I mean, here we are. We, we know everybody here. We should look we at the do. gender balance in our audience, though. Yes, <laughs> yeah, we should. <laughs> but what it also has done very much is exactly that. We're yeah. here. We're talking about it. Um, and women, particularly, and I'll speak perhaps largely just about women since it's International Women's Day, are um, no longer really wanting to stay silent anymore. And we are amongst ourselves, indeed, in these audiences, in these groups where we feel safe talking and raising the issue. So how does that then have an effect on international institutions? Um, it has effects that there are more discussions within institutions as well about what is happening within our own, within our four walls. Um, do we need better policies, etc.? So we have seen a rise in policies, in discussions, in awareness, in trainings. Um, but that, the question then is, does that have effect? Yeah. Okay, well, you got a new job out of it. <laughs> exactly, I was going to say. Absolutely, I think absolutely it has led to change. My role didn't exist three years ago. Just it was hold, on, hold on a moment. Come and join Hi, us Granny. if you want to, but come on in. And, uh, you know, just uh, we're having a live podcast at the moment. Your, your job didn't exist before. Yeah, exactly. So I think as, as a sector and all international institutions, there's definitely more attention for it. As Alix said, I agree, we're having this conversation not only today, but we have this conversation regularly online as well as offline. And I think that's important. That's the first step. We're talking around how do we ensure integrity is taken into account in the election of the prosecutor. We weren't having that same conversation the last time round. So that you definitely do see some changes happening. And also, oh, if I may, um, what you see changes as well is other institutions such as NGOs or bar associations picking up the issue yeah. as well and reporting on it. Um, so the International Bar Association, to mention one, has done a very extensive report that they launched last year, and I really recommend you to go online, find it and download it. It's called Us Too, Sexual Harassment and Bullying in the Legal Profession. And what they did is go out and seek the uh, feedback from over 7,000 legal professionals about, well, we're post Me Too or we're in the midst of Me Too, I should say. What about you? And a staggering amount of legal professionals have indeed responded by saying, yes, sexual harassment in, is rife within all of our organizations, be it in magistrate, uh, be it in prosecution's office, being in law firms, and be it in international institutions. Um, and that shows us and gives us the data to really push forward the discussion. So um, we're at the very beginning stages. We're at yeah. the very beginning stages, but we're getting much more concrete data to go to um, the, the leadership of these organizations and say something needs to be done. Yeah, and okay. I think it's right that where you're saying it's important to have that data to be able to inform your have evidence-based policymaking is important. Um, but at the same time, we're, we're not there yet, not even close. So data, potentially, um, the conversation is leading to data. Data could lead to policy. What policy changes are we seeing? Well, I think it depends on the, the institution. For instance, if I look at Oxfam, uh, as well as a lot of other organiza organizations that work in the humanitarian development field, that we've invested a lot in setting up a setting up a system to allow people to come forward, create a safe culture, not only in the organization, in the kitchen, to be able to, to talk to your colleague and say, hey, the way you spoke to me or that joke that you made, I'm, I'm not comfortable with that. Or I saw someone else who may not have felt comfortable. That's one thing we have to do. But I think it's also very important that you, um, and that's part of what my team does, is have that structure, a confidential safe space that you can go to 
and share concerns with who can then take you seriously have procedures in place that when someone comes forward with a concern of sexual harassment what do you do with it how do so, you keep your information no. confidential um, who investigates how do you investigate who do you share that information with what do you then do following an investigation how do you keep people accountable what are the consequences for behavior I think that's where there's still a lot of work especially if when I worked in the International Justice Institution, I didn't see any of that there. I think that's really just starting. It is, it is just starting. And there are more policies, although it's only about 50% of international institutions that have real good sturdy policies in place or trainings in place. But what uh, research has also shown, it's not enough. And actually, those policies haven't really made an impact. Okay, so policy is like something that's written on paper that people don't yes. follow. So is it... Is it really more about changing kind of conditions at work, like people's minds? What is acceptable? What's unacceptable? Is that what it's really all about? I think that's definitely very important because if, we, if we're not clear about how we expect each other to behave, then everyone comes to your organization with your own personal background. I always talk in, in trainings, we always say everyone has an invisible backpack that has your values, but also your experiences, what you have gone through in your life. And we exist as international institutions within the world that is fundamentally unequal. And those inequalities we bring into the workplace. So if we're not gonna talk about how we will deal with those inequalities and what's in our invisible backpack and our experiences, if we're not talking about that, how that may affect how I might respond to a colleague or how I engage with colleagues, then how are we, how are we actually going to move forward on, on, on some of these issues? Because I think also experience that people have had in the past may also mean that they respond maybe a little bit more, um, well, I don't want to say violently, but more... Defensively. Maybe defensively or more in a, be more shocked about how people are engaging with you. If I, for instance, as an example, you know, if I've suffered a big trauma about having engaged with a colleague, and I can see certain behavior repeating itself with another colleague, I might respond from a place of anger and anxiety much more than someone else. So to having conversations that no one responds in the same way to any situation, I think is really important. Do men get very defensive when you start <laughs> to talk like this? I mean, just to say there are only a couple of men, three, 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 I think, see, uh, four, sorry. Uh, Oh, one behind the screen just popped his head round. Five, uh, six. <laughs> a few of them around. I mean, is it a difficult conversation to have with men? Well, it's a very female topic, isn't it? Apparently, which it, it's not at all. Um, right. But but That's you see indeed problem, from our audience yeah. uh, that when you start discussing sexual harassment, as with any other. F it's not any other feminist issue. I was almost going to say, so you see how ingrained it is. Um, when you talk about sexual harassment, it feels like it's, well, you know, it's, it's mainly women who are, who are uh, the victim of this, so it's a women's issue that women need to resolve. And I think the danger with that is that we're almost creating higher barriers now for men to come forward, because the Me Too movement, of course, exposed that statistically speaking, it is still the case that women do suffer this type of behavior more than men. But by emphasizing that so much, we're creating silences to also men who may have suffered this to have an even bigger barrier. We see that around sexual and gender-based violence in international law. Everyone, you know, we see that the barrier for men to even come forward is a lot higher. So I think also we have to be careful there. Is it even more difficult, let's say, when it is hmm. um, male, male, um, power relations involved also in the sexual sphere? 
Um, can that also make it more difficult for people to come forward? Oh, I think absolutely, because I mean, that's what we're saying that it's it's less it's statistically speaking, at least so far as we know, um, we don't know either. Maybe in 20 years from now, we're looking at very different statistics. Um, but I think it is more difficult. This sexual harassment and other types of sexual abuse are notoriously underreported. We know that. And I think that that goes for both men and women and everything in between. Um, but so I, th I agree. I think it is more more difficult for men to come forward when they've suffered this. But I think regardless of whether it's male on male against men against men, women against women, etc. What in the example of I think accountability is really important, and it's about the process you follow when someone does come forward. Simply confronting someone and say, "Hey, someone said this about you," giving them a chance to respond. That's not going to be effective as an organization because then you get into the traditional he said, she said, or she said, she said, and he said, and he said. Whereas if you have a professional response process, including investigators who are experienced in dealing with these cases, who can break through that traditional, well, it's one person said against another person's word, there's often evidence that you can look at. It's often statements, but it's about how that professionalizing that response so that it isn't no longer a situation where you just confront someone with it and they say, no, I didn't do it. Oh, well, that's end of story. Yeah. I can imagine that there's quite a lot of situations where people say, hey, but all this is just going to give rise to kind of malicious allegations mm -hmm. and unsubstantiated allegations. So we just shouldn't talk about it at all. Yeah, I, I, I find that um, I, I, I get that argument quite quite often and quite immediately even when discussing issues pertaining to sexual harassment or giving these like, insane statistics that one in three women and one in 14 men experience in the legal profession sexual harassment. The immediate response oftentimes is, but be careful, be careful what you're saying because it could be malicious and uh, it could be just a campaign to get someone, you know, out of office, etc. And I'm like, wait a minute, isn't it much more, uh, you know, an, an issue that uh, we are faced with such an endemic and a terrible um, problem here and challenge? Now, this is not to say that indeed there should be a very good due process norms enforced and in place. Of course, there should be, as in any sort of mechanism, trying to uncover the truth, trying to uncover and get to justice. Well, let's take one specific example. You already raised it yourself, uh, Alex, a little bit. Uh, your organization joined a recent letter which asked the nominating committee for uh, the next prosecutor for the International Criminal Court to actually look really carefully at uh, the records of any of the candidates, also for the judges as well, I think he said. Um, are you satisfied with the response they get? They said, um, yeah, anybody who's got anything to say can come forward and, and tell us anything they want. Is that enough? Well, we're happy that, that they're open um, because they have shown openness to indeed receiving any sort of uh, complaints, allegations, reports, etc. cetera. Um, however, there are so many challenges with that um, because first of all, when you just zoom in on the ICC prosecutor election, um, there are 14 shortlisted candidates um, to date, uh, those names are not public. 
And so if you are someone who thinks that maybe um, someone has applied for the job of ICC prosecutor and you think that that person may have indeed either uh, condoned or ignored or even committed a sexual harassment, um, where do you turn to? Well, you turn to the committees, a structure that you don't necessarily know very well. And um, you can't really be certain of the procedures, of your anonymity, what is going to happen to your information, etc. And so the threshold of coming forward, uh, coming forward even if you don't know that the person that you have in mind is going to be a candidate, is particularly high. Dinika, you were uh, tweeting about this, weren't you? <laughs> yes. I can remember yes. seeing your, your, your Twitter rant on this. <laughs> yes, Go I had it. a Twitter rant. No, I think it is a fabulous initiative and it's so important that civil society did that letter and called attention to it because we all know integrity is a fundamental requirement of any elected official, especially the prosecutor and deputy prosecutor, in the Rome Statute. They have, must have ha the highest levels of integrity. What does that mean? The Rome Statute doesn't actually tell you. Um, so I think it's really, really important. That said, um, I don't really want to, I did call it tokenism on Twitter, so I'll, I'll own it here. <laughs> I wonder to what extent there is a level of tokenism here to saying, yeah, sure, on paper, we're absolutely, we're looking at this. But how in practice are you going, going to expect someone to come forward, as Elise mentioned, about someone who you don't even know is on that list? Uh, about something that is deeply personal to you if you've suffered this. The threshold to come forward for victims of sexual harassment is already huge. To speak to someone you have never met, where you don't know what's going to happen with your information, who is that going to be shared with? Is my name going to be shared? Um, are you immediately going to call up that supposed candidate and say, well, you know, Dinika said this about you. Am I then going to feel comfortable to come forward? How long is that information stored? Where is that stored? I think there's a lot of unknown questions still about this process that need to be addressed by the committee and explained for this to properly work. Um, and the responsibility then is fully placed exactly. on the victim. Yeah. Um, the other thing that strikes me is uh, here we are in this city that's all doing good and all these institutions, humanitarian, legal, etc., we're all meant to be in the business of, uh, of good stuff. Is it... Um, is there that sense that we shouldn't really be criticizing because we're because the the, the the bigger goods for the for the for the better good of, of of the work that we're doing is that something you come across Dinica? that that we're held to higher standard or that we should be talking about it what are you well, well, not that we're held to higher standards, that, that the work matters uh, more, more than, than the, uh, well, the behaviour. I mean, if there's one thing we've learned as well in Oxfam, uh, we, there was an independent commission that looked at Oxfam that um, sort of held a mirror in front of us and said, this is who you are as an organisation. And one of the critical things they said, it's not about what you do, it's about how you do it. And it's so important. Because I think at an institution like the ICC that works for global justice, can we, like, where's their legitimacy if they don't reflect that internally. Absolutely. 100% agree. Okay, so uh, so we've all got to make a yeah, question back at the back, uh, back there. Hold on, here comes the thing. Um, so it's quite a wide and um, wide question, but you know, we've been talking about putting in place new policies, new accountability processes, internalizing a culture where you're not going to victim blame, you're going to listen to their account. And this all looks great and it's a great step, but I'm just wondering in practical reality how many people who face harassment in the workplace, who face uncomfortable situations, do they find themselves able to actually come forward, actually you know, raise this issue with someone who can maybe help them?
Well, that's an excellent question. Uh, the threshold is impossibly high. Um, because consider the, the, the first, the impact that it has on you as a person, and then be able to come forward with your story, just even to your friends, to your family, this has happened to me. Even if you sort of recognize, step one, if you recognize um, that a sexual harassment has been perpetrated against you, because we're talking about a long list of issues or things that can happen to you that fall under the remit of sexual harassment, um, and then uh, the massive power imbalance that there is as well. Um, go, go and challenge, indeed, uh, someone who has uh, who is at the head of an institution. Um, you need to be extremely courageous to be able to, to do that. Um, and so um, one of the things that, that, that we've seen is that prevention is one of the key ways to address um, sexual harassment in the workplace and in order to do so you need leaders, supervisors, managers in place that enforce a zero tolerance policy uh, and zero tolerance oh, policy. Oh, zero tolerance. Yes. What does zero tolerance mean? That is a really good question. <laughs> Sorry, yes. Sorry no, for interrupting no, no, no. but okay I want to know what does no, this mean? No, let's talk about zero tolerance. Yeah, no, I think this is a really critical question um, and I'll, I'll go back to the question that was just asked so I want to add something on that but I think talking about what we mean with zero tolerance is really important because if you say zero tolerance means that and I've seen this over the past couple of years where people think that zero tolerance means that whatever if anything bad happens the person is automatically fired no matter what happens that creates a level of fear and people will stop coming forward so that's a bad thing that's a bad thing okay. because I absolutely there need to be really good and serious consequences for behavior but there's also different kinds of behavior that fall within that spectrum of sexual harassment it's a spectrum of behavior uh, a colleague making one joke in the kitchen that makes me uncomfortable firing would be a disproportionate offense disproportionate response so you need to make sure that your response to the type of allegation is proportionate because that also allows creates a safer space for people to come forward because a lot of um, people who suffer this conduct don't necessarily want that person to be fired. They just want the behavior to stop. Is that what you mean by zero tolerance, Alex? Yes, what I mean, well, what I mean by zero tolerance is very much that indeed. It's first understanding what falls under sexual harassment all the way from uh, looking at someone with sort of sexual intentions and making someone feel uncomfortable all the way down to rape. I mean, the list is very long. And if you understand that to start with, if you understand all the forms that sexual harassment can take, then you can also address that, discuss it, and try to enforce, indeed, a zero-tolerance policy, which yeah. is not, well, if you looked at your colleague wrong, then you are fired. No, it is opening it up for discussion, making it understood why it is important in the workplace to actually, yes, avoid those sort of uh, jokes make, made in the kitchen because this is the effect that it can have. And some of the, the reactions and responses to that that I get and that may come up with you as well, like are we, are we working towards like a Puritan society, you know, where we're not allowed to make jokes anymore or where I'm not allowed to say anything or look anything or flirt and it's a reaction that some men have as well, like oh my god, I, I'm not allowed to do anything anymore, like you know what? I'll just not, not involve women anymore or, or sit or have coffee with my female colleague because, my God, what The if? Mike Pence rule. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, but I think the most important thing about zero tolerance is that it should be zero tolerance for not acting on concerns. And that's what yeah. Alex is saying. Like you have to have the conversation. We need to have procedures in place that when someone does come forward, we don't just shrug our shoulders and say, well, that's just the environment. Let's move on. 
it's not because it's exactly that it's the environment because if if you sustain, not create, but sustain an environment where it's acceptable to make those sort of jokes, where it's acceptable to touch each other without, you, you know, um, etc., um, then you sustain an environment in which other acts, other um, uh, harassment is more accepted. Yeah. And I think um, to get back to the question, how do you create that safe space for people to actually come forward? Um, I mean, as Oxfam, we've massively invested in this over the last couple of years. We're definitely not there yet. There's still a lot of work also for us to do, but we have seen a big change. If I compare numbers of people that came forward two years ago with this year, it's very, very different. Because we've invested in specific individuals like those in my team who have a full-time role on working on this. Of course, Oxfam is a big organization, that makes sense. Smaller organizations, maybe it might not make sense to have a full-time designated person who works full-time on integrity issues, but you do see a change when you create some systems. It's definitely a first step, but you see that it has an effect for people to be able to come forward. Um, there are a series of questions that we always ask on the Asymmetrical Haircuts podcast, and we don't tell them beforehand, but if they've listened <laughs> to the podcast, they know what these questions are. Here's the test. So the first one is, um, uh, is there anything that we should have asked? So I'm going to ask that to you. What yeah. what else should we, should we ask these women? Yeah, over here. Hello, um, Clara Gerard Rodriguez. I work as a criminal lawyer in Paris, but previously worked as a support staff in both defense and victims team at the ICC. I find that there is one issue that is often overlooked when we talk about these issues, and that is the almost complete lack of labor law or labor regulations in international institutions. I'm thinking of the ICC where among the internal staff you have a lot of young female on short-term contracts with no guarantee of their contracts being renewed. You have external parties where um, the appointment of support staff is at the complete discretion of counsel being in terms of duration, salary, right to a maternity leave or not, um, everything. And so I wonder if one of the things we should be pushing forward is on top of internal policies that are very you know, fine, is then the adoption or the applicability of just like basic labor rights in these institutions that would both protect victims of sexual harassment or misconduct in the workplace, but also guarantee um, gender equality and more opportunities for, for women. Thanks for the question. I was thinking as you were saying it, number one, this sounds a bit like Hollywood. I can remember like uh, Samantha B has just uh, announced for her podcast that uh, and her, her thing, Full Frontal, that she's introducing maternity rights and she's one of the first, first people to do it. And the other thing I was thinking, yeah, I bet you this is a lawyer talking. <laughs> yeah. So talking about legal rights, yeah. what do you think? Absolutely, I yeah. think that is at the ICN in any international institution, um, the internal policies need to be inclusive for everyone working um, at those institutions uh, or for those institutions in whatever way, so that it indeed includes volunteers, interns, counsel, etc. Um, so that's a very important point. Um, and the creation of better professional environments, um, because that is a, a symptom. Uh, that works toward those power imbalances that then work toward potential harassment. But I think also in terms of labor law, there's a wide variety of labor law around the world. And one of the beauties of an international organization that falls within that UN system, knowing it's not a UN court, is that they get to choose what 
laws apply, what systems apply and how they want to. So I think there's also an opportunity to say, this is the standard that we're expecting us to comply with versus, oh, I'm living in this country and the labor law actually doesn't even recognize gender equality, let alone sexual harassment. So there's also an opportunity there, I think. Okay, the other question, oh, anything else that somebody wants to ask? Jill wants to ask a question over here. We're celebrating International Women's Day and there's a lot of focus on the gender question, but I'm also interested in understanding the insights on the power question. Is it a gender issue or is it a power issue, sexual harassment, and how do we deal with it in that context? Well, it's certainly a power issue, but I think gender is also about power. Um, because gen power, you have relative power, there's social power, you have power in hierarchy. There's definitely a lot of, uh, the t typical type of example people think of the sexual harassment is a very senior, probably male staff, sexually harassing the low level junior female intern. That definitely is the typical case, but I think power exists in so many more ways than hierarchical power. There's societal power, there's relative power based on gender lines, but also based on other um, equality and other lines of inequality that exist in our society. So I think it's very important. I think one of the misconceptions as well around sexual harassment is that it's about sex and sexual attraction. It's not, it's about power. And it's about an abuse of power. Thanks for, for raising that question. Anything you want to add, Alex? No, I think it was a really important thing to, to stick on the table for yeah. us. Okay, did we have another question? Yeah, I'm just linked to your, mission, your discussion on power. You, I wondered also about things like the pay gap, the gender pay gap, glass ceiling, because I can't help but think if more women were at the top, uh, there would be a very different company culture. Um, yeah, I'm not saying that all harassment would disappear, but I, I feel like just the, whole, the dynamics would change drastically. Yeah, absolutely. Diversity creates different environments, not just gender diversity, but diversity in all its forms. Yeah. And on that subject, just to say, I'm sorry that there's no strong diversity in this, this panel. I mean, <laughs> yeah. It's one of the things that we're working at always, um, that we're always looking for, for women from uh, different cultural backgrounds to, to take part. Uh, so, you know, if you think that you could take part in another Asymmetrical Haircuts podcast at some point, please, you know, step up. Anything you want to add on that? Okay, uh, any other questions? Uh, yeah, here. Uh, so I had two small questions. Uh, uh, do you think that it matters who's on the other side of the table? And by that, I mean, if I have a complaint against somebody, would it matter if I'm approaching a woman with that complaint or a man? And secondly, uh, do you think uh, victim blaming and like the confidentiality issue also plays a role in how many people come forth? Alex? Um, yes, is my very short answer yes, to yes. both <laughs> your questions. Yes, I can imagine. I can imagine that if you have suffered a sexual assault and you are yourself a man, that you maybe feel more comfortable discussing those issues with a man. Same if you're a woman, do you, you feel more comfortable discussing it uh, um, with a woman. That doesn't necessarily mean that because you're a woman, as you were saying, that then all issues disappear uh, if your superior is a woman. No, but it can make it uh, definitely a little bit easier um, and victim blaming as well. Yeah. But maybe Dinika is... Yeah, I agree. I think definitely we need to talk about victim blaming and that's a conversation that needs yeah. to happen everywhere in the in the canteen at, at these meetings because that's one big aspect that creates the barrier to reporting. The gender of who you're talking to of course matters but ultimately what's most important is that people are able to speak up to someone that they are comfortable with, whoever that is. So in our system we have our own team and we have a gender balance and other diversity within our team and I want to recognize two of my team members here. <laughs> 
Um, but uh, what's also important is that you know if you go to if you feel comfortable with your manager, that you can go to your manager, and the manager then knows where to go. So ultimately, speak up to someone that you are comfortable with. I think is very important, and something where organizations need to um, keep in mind as well. And the other, the last question we always ask, I'm going to miss out the middle one, but the last question we always ask is, is there anything you've been watching recently? Yes. Is there anything you've been reading recently? Uh, anything you've been listening to recently that you'd like to share? So floor is open, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, yes, I've got two. You can have <laughs> two. I'll stick and with then, the theme of today. And then <laughs> yes. anybody else want to add anything in, you're welcome. Uh, I'll keep it short. There's two things in, in keeping with the theme of today. One is... Um, the book She Said by Megan Toohey and Jody Cantor. Um, they were two of the journalists who exposed the Harvey Weinstein scandal. And it's about their struggle. It's about the, the barriers to reporting. It's about how difficult it was for people to come forward, but also how difficult it was for them to report and how they were undermined every step of the way. Um, so it's a really brilliant book uh, that they wrote afterwards about their journey to getting this exposed. And the second one is to watch the show called The Morning Show on Apple TV. Um, which is a dramatized version of Hollywood and uh, a morning show where sexual harassment uh, comes to the fore and how that organization deals with it. And I think the actors do a very brilliant job and I got really angry with one of the main characters. So they've, met, they've done a really good job <laughs> of sort of laying it out and having that out in the open and talked about more. That's excellent. Um, one book. Uh, that I thought of one of my favorite books um, in keeping with the theme but uh, following on your question regarding power is The Power by Naomi Elderman yes. an absolute <coughs> must read because it explores in such an interesting way um, the, the, the gender inequality dynamics uh, linked to physical power uh, an eye opening it, it, very highly recommended okay any, for any recommendations from anybody in the room what you've been watching on Netflix over there to Jill first. Uh, there's a book by Pat Barker called The Silence of the Girls, which is a story about the female voice in the time of the Trojan War. It's very interesting because there's very little written about the female voice in that, uh, in that uh, thing. And Pat Barker did a lot of research about what happened with the females when um, Achilles and Achaemenon, when they, uh, when they invaded other cities, and then they got the women as prizes. And that's the, that's the women's side of the story. It's very, very uh, valuable. I second that one. Yeah, over here, we've got two over here. Two things worth mentioning. Uh, first, uh, as it is on Netflix, many of, many of you may have already seen it, but I really thought that Unbelievable was a unbelievable show. Uh, it was really uh, well acted, and it shows the difference between coming forward uh, to someone who does not believe you, who questions everything you do, uh, and coming forward towards uh, another investigator who is uh, uh, really um, survivor-centered approach, who used a survivor-centered approach, so I thought that was a really good show. And something that was uh, uh, launched yesterday is from the Mukwe Foundation. Uh, I haven't seen it yet. It has premiered in the US, but um, hopefully it's also coming uh, uh, to other countries. Uh, and it's called SEMA, uh, Speak Out in Swahili. And it's a movie um, both uh, written and performed by survivors from sexual violence in the Congo. So I would be very interested to see that, although I cannot say yet how it looks like, but uh, maybe something to keep in mind. Maybe something slightly more lighthearted to watch uh, is Sex Education, also Netflix. Some of you might know. And one of the characters was also, uh, well, she's a schoolgirl, and she was suffering sexual harassment on the bus. 
And that raises also a question about maybe younger generations or children suffering uh, from those issues and some of the potential signs they might be exhibiting because they're not brave enough maybe to come forward with regards to those things. But I think it's uh, also, it raises sort of um, an issue that sexual harassment can be happening on every levels and in different environments. And you don't even always know the person. Okay, I'm going to wrap this up now. Let's have a big round of applause for our guests. This podcast was created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. Show notes and additional blogs are available on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. It is recorded in the Hague Humanity Hub home to a community of innovators in the field of peace, justice, development and humanitarian action. Music is by audionautics.com and the show is available on every major podcast service, so please subscribe, give us a rating and spread the word.